Francis Groves, the author of Antiquities of Scotland, was staying locally, and he agreed to Robert's request to produce a drawing of the old Kirk at Alloway if Robert would write a story of witches to be printed with it. And thus, Tam O'Shanter was born. Hello folks, and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash, and today is the 25th of January, meaning tonight is Burns Night, celebrated around the world, but a particularly important date here in Scotland, where in non-lockdown circumstances, every pub would be serving a Burns Night supper of haggis, neeps and tatties, glasses would be emptied, and maybe even a poem or two would be recited in memory of Robert Burns. The first Burns supper was actually given on the anniversary of his death, not his birth, 21st of July 1801, just five years after he died. The following year, the 29th of January, was elected before Burns' followers finally discovered his actual birth date. Since then, Burns' night has become a national institution and is observed in some circles with high ceremony. Traditionally, a haggis is brought into the dining room led by a bagpiper and blessed with a recital of Burns' poem addressed to a haggis, in which he honours that great chieftain of the pudding race. But today, I'm skipping the haggis course and instead talking about one of Burns' longer poems, Tamashanta. This is a narrative poem told in galloping rhyme. The eponymous Tam is an Ayrshire farmer who habitually gets drunk every market day to the angry despair of his wife, Kate, who sits at home in Kirk Oswald, gathering her brews like gathering storm, nursing her wrath to keep it warm. After another night of getting bleased, Tam heads home on his mare Maggie and comes across an extraordinary vision of an illuminated church. There he sees warlocks and witches dancing to the devil's bagpipes. Unafraid, Tam stares with interest at one scantily clad lass among the carnival before he gives himself away and he and Maggie have to ride for their lives. Posing as a cautionary tale about excessive drink, the poem is in fact, as Carol McGurk has written, a celebration of an ale-drunk farmer by a word-drunk narrator. Along with Old Lang Syne and Ode to a Mouse, Tam O'Shanter is one of Burns' best-known works, considered by some to be his masterpiece. Burns was a pioneer of the Romantic movement, admired by other Romantics like William Wordsworth, who imitated Tam O'Shanter in his own, rather less wild, Benjamin the Wagoner. More esoterically, this poem also inspired works of classical music, the song Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden, and gave its name to a hat, the Tam O'Shanter. Tam himself has become a folk hero, his jovial image, bearing said hat, commemorated in statues, paintings and tobacco adverts. He's even inspired a festival in his favourite drinking town of Ayr, Tamfest, which has been running since 2015. So let's meet him as he first appeared, in this poem published in 1791. Without further ado, I wish you all a very happy Burns Night, and I hope this episode on Tamashanta can skelp it some way to replacing a plate of haggis and a wee dram. Before Tamashanta, Burns' first success came with his collection Poems Chiefly in the Scottish Dialect, published locally in Kilmarnock. Up until then, Burns had lived, like Tam, in Ayrshire. Increasing problems with money and women had tempted Burns to emigrate to Jamaica, a move he kept postponing and eventually spurned in favour of trying to get a second edition of his poems printed in Edinburgh. This he duly managed, and so a country poet became the talk of the town. In the year of his arrival, Henry Mackenzie wrote, Though I am far from meaning to compare our rustic bard to Shakespeare, Yet whoever will read his lighter and more humorous poems will perceive with what uncommon penetration and sagacity this heaven-taught ploughman from his humble and unlettered station has looked upon men and manners. 
And so a rather shoddy tradition was born, one that despite Mackenzie's protestations, repeated one of the lazy clichés attached to Shakespeare. Namely, that because he wasn't a university graduate, his ability as a poet must have a supernatural source. Either Mother Nature or God had smiled upon these bumpkins. The well-educated people of Edinburgh knew this, as they knew instinctively not to consider anything as unthinkable as a farm boy being self-taught. Burns was one of many celebrated rustic poets of the 18th century, puzzled over by the enlightened like Dr. Zaius in Planet of the Apes. Burns wasn't entirely put out by the comparison to Shakespeare, understandably so, and in fact he incorporated the phrase Woodnotes Wild into his coat of arms. The phrase comes from John Milton, who famously imagined Shakespeare as Fancy's child warbling his native Woodnotes Wild, which, well-intentioned as it may be, manages to be fantastically insulting at the same time. Burns's acquisition of a coat of arms poignantly recalls Shakespeare in another way, the English bard's father had also, despite his class, managed to get a coat of arms for his family. No small undertaking for a humble glover, who in all probability was illiterate. Caledonia's bard was still on the receiving end of this fusty-minded bias as recently as 1927, where in Casimir and Legoese's monumental history of English literature, they reach Burns with a kind of irritated bafflement. Burns brings an element of complication into what is otherwise the relatively simple evolution of English poetry. The influence of a half-foreign nationality and the racy vigour of a son of the soil quicken in him the germ of unexpected originality. Once again, a compliment is buried like a turnip under a heap of filthy, filthy earth. Whilst Burns was in Edinburgh, a young Walter Scott recorded meeting him, and if there is any truth in this rather breathless account of his, we should feel all the more the insult of those calling Burns a heaven-taught ploughman. Scott writes of Burns that his person was strong and robust, his manners rustic, not clownish. He had a sort of dignified plainness and simplicity. The eye alone, I think, indicated the poetical character and temperament. It was large and of a dark cast, and glowed, I say literally glowed, when he spoke with feeling or interest. I never saw such an eye in a human head, though I have seen most distinguished men of my time. His conversation expressed perfect self-confidence without the slightest presumption. Among the men who were the most learned of their time and country, he expressed himself with perfect firmness, but without the least intrusive forwardness. And when he differed in opinion, he did not hesitate to express it firmly, yet at the same time with modesty. Burns was far from comfortable with the probing attentions of the great and good, and wrote to a friend, I am willing to believe that my abilities deserved a better fate than the veriest shades of life, but to be dragged forth with all my imperfections on my head, to the full glare of learned and polite observations, is what, I am afraid, I shall have bitter reason to repent. On the brighter side of life in Edinburgh, Burns managed to get several more disastrous love affairs under his belt, and joined a drinking club, the Crocallan Fencibles, who had regular sessions at Anchor Close on the Royal Mile. Burns was invited to the club by its founder, the man who had printed the second edition of his poems, the unforgettably named William Smelly. According to Alan Foster, Burns had probably had enough of the airs and graces of genteel Edinburgh and was reaching out for what he enjoyed best, drinking wine, wooing lassies and singing a bawdy song. But this sort of behaviour wasn't how a good heaven-taught ploughman was supposed to act, and Burns soon fell out of favour with a great deal of his earlier admirers. They were growing bored of his novelty and didn't want anything to do with a blethering, blustering, drunken blellum, as Tam is called by his disapproving wife. According to Dugald Stewart, 
His conduct and manners had become so degraded that decent persons could hardly take any notice of him. Less than a year after arriving, Burns left Edinburgh never to return. Instead, he eventually settled on a farm in Dumfriesshire. It is testament to how successfully mythologised Burns has been that despite only staying in Edinburgh for a matter of months, he is immortally associated with this city. And as is the case with that other rustic bard, being Fancy's child seems to legitimise baseless or crude biographical readings of his work. A habit unwise in the case of any author, but especially so in a figure as frequently contradictory as Burns. As Don Patterson writes, his character is so complicated as effectively not to exist at all. There is barely a human trait which he did not exhibit at one time or another, as if it somehow defined him. However, in the case of Tamashanta, there are clearly certain elements drawn from real life. Alloway Kirk, where the poem climaxes with the witches' dance, stood in ruins just around the corner from where Burns lived as a child. His father, William, repaired some of the outer wall, and when he died, he was buried in the kirkyard. Burns based Tam on a man called Douglas Graham, who lived on Shanter Farm in Kirk Oswald, where Burns went to school. In the poem, Kirk Oswald remains Tam's home, which we leave him cantering for across the Brigadoon. Tam Shanter would be rendered in English as Tom of Shanter, just as Brigadoon would be the much less enticing bridge over the River Doon. Brigadoon, with its oral summons of both doom and break of dawn, is much more in keeping with Burns's flair for conveying meaning with sound. On the night of the poem's action, a storm brews. The wind blew as twad blown its last, the rattling showers rose on the blast. The speedy gleams the darkness swallowed, loud, deep and lang the thunder bellowed. That night a child might understand, the dale had business on his hand. Just as a child might understand the language of a storm, Burns's language communicates itself with a similar crackle and roll and then flash of understanding. The poem is written in iambic tetrameter, using a mixture of English and Scots, the proportion of which is very finely judged. The overwhelming impression we get is of being spoken to in a Scots voice, and it is widely accepted that the best bits are the Scots bits. But there is enough English bridging between the keystones in order for the poem to be comprehended on either side of Hadrian's Wall. The non-Scottish reader doesn't need a glossary to get the sense of Ear market night, Tam had got planted uncorite, fast by an ingle bleezing finely with reaming swats that drank divinely. Bleezing means simply blazing, while reaming swats means fresh foaming beer. But without knowing that, we already get the warmth and slushiness and merriment of being half-cut and toasty, thanks to those interior rhymes, bleezing and reaming. There's also a bit of seediness to the scene, as soon made evident when we see that married Tam is up for a bit of mischief with the landlady. We get a buzzing, verminous tinge from bleezing and swats, reaming swats, sounding almost like teeming beer flies. Although he was the creator of many bawdy songs, and having as a child heard folk songs sung by his mother, apparently Burns couldn't hold a tune, yet as we can see, he possessed a very fine ear for rhyme. As Tam makes to leave, we are told, Ne man can tether time or tide, The hour approaches Tam morn ride, That hour o' night's black arch the key stain, That dreary hour he mounts his beast in. Key stain and beast in, Shouldn't work on paper, but it does, and all the better in Scots. 
But more importantly, look how much Burns has aligned in one rhyming couplet. That hour, a knight's black arch the key stain. That dreary hour he mounts his beast in. Midnight is the hour, which is the keystone in the knight's black arch. In that hour, Tam ascends onto the arch of his beast's back. And so we have this pivotal sense of reaching two peaks at once. Adding to that, the mention of keystones inevitably brings to mind bridges. And before we even get to the end of the poem, we are anticipating the Brigadoon, because we have heard Kate's prophecy that if Tam keeps drinking late at night, he'll end up drowned in that very river. The Arch of Maggie's Back, the Arch of the Night, and the Arch of the Fateful Bridge are all conjured up and brought together in one neat little sound. And while such effects aspire to be the kind of sound a child might understand, they are neither childish nor heaven-taught. They demonstrate hard-won skill and a very delicate touch. The fantasy of the bumpkin bard dictates that he must come from nowhere, and to keep the fantasy alive, any suggestion of Burns being well-read or having any influences must, in the words of Robert Louis Stevenson, be eagerly suppressed. It was nevertheless true that however much bumpkinry he did or didn't get up to, Robert Burns was extremely well-read, and despite his financial problems, possessed a large library while still a young man. Among some of the Scottish poets he read were William Dunbar, Robert Henryson, Alan Ramsey, and in particular, Robert Ferguson. Burns wrote of Ferguson's work reinvigorating his own lost enthusiasm for poetry. Rhymes, except for some religious pieces, I had given up, but meeting with Ferguson's Scotch poems, I strung anew my wildly sounding rustic lyre with emulating vigour. It's worth pointing out that Burns shares a liking of Scott's poems with Tam, who leaves the Ingleside crooning o'er some old Scots sonnet. Ferguson was ultimately a tragic figure, a fellow Edinburgh lad for whom Robert Louis Stevenson felt a kinship for, describing him as a poor, drunken, vicious boy. He may have suffered from depression, and after a head injury was unwillingly confined to a lunatic asylum, where at the age of 24, he died. According to Alan Foster, one of the first things Burns did after his arrival in Edinburgh was to search out Robert Ferguson's neglected grave in Canongate Kirkyard and set the wheels in motion for a simple memorial stone to be erected over his unmarked grave. In Ferguson's memory, Burns had written, O thou, my elder brother in misfortune, by far my elder brother in the muses, with tears I pity thy unhappy fate. Why is the bard unpitied by the world? yet has so keen a relish of its pleasures. Both certainly had their fair share of misfortune, and both had a keen relish of worldly pleasures. Both seem to have been heroes of the tavern, and privately subject to periods of depression. And unsurprisingly, both had similar poetic inclinations. Ferguson also used a blend of Scots and English in many of his verses, and like Burns, wrote poems that simultaneously teased and praised their subject. Ferguson does so in his famous poem, Old Reeky, the nickname given to Edinburgh in its polluted youth. The poem earnestly celebrates quotidian aspects of city life, doesn't flinch from vice, dissipation and stink, but rather bestows upon them a kind of winking honour by including them in this heroic verse. Burns was drawn to this satirical side of Ferguson's writing and uses the same mock heroic tone in Tamashanta. Looked at one way and holding one's nose, Tamashanta is the tale of a brave farmer who outgallops the devil. Looked at another way, it is the tale of a man too drunk to be frightened, who, witnessing a diabolical vision, only has eyes for a fleeting glimpse of arse. And looked at yet another way, the whole affair could be an elaborate drunken hallucination. 
Establishing the ironic, heroic register of the poem, its epigraph is taken from Gavin Douglas's Scots translation of Virgil's Enid. And as Carol McGurk points out, in Virgil's Book 6, Aeneas descends into the underworld to consult the shade of his father Anchises. Burns's poem likewise revisits the spirit of William Burns, who is buried in Alloway Churchyard, backdrop for this poem's culminating vision, a dance of witches. The excess of drink which makes Tam fearless of that vision is what gives him his heroic status. We hear in the tavern that, As bees flee hame we lades a treasure, The minutes winged their way with pleasure. Kings may be blessed, but Tam was glorious. O'er are the ills a life victorious. With his own treasure of golden ale, or swats reaming in his noddle, Tam is more glorious than a king, and surely equipped to flee hame safe. Burns continues this balancing act, letting us hear one thing and see another. Wheel mounted on his grey mare Meg, a better never lifted leg. Tam skelp it on through dub and mire, despising wind and rain and fire. What we hear encoded in this rhythm and language is a mounted hero, charging on a fine leg through the elements he repels, while what we see is a farmer, worse for wear, and having the glow of the tavern washed and blown off him by miserable Scottish weather. As Tam rides on, the narrator gives us a history of the landscape, which, as Sean Barry has said, renders Ayrshire as a topography of accidents, murder and suicide, in a litany of places where a peddler was smothered in the snow, where a drunk fell from his horse and broke his neck, where hunters discovered the body of a murdered child, and where a woman committed suicide. Dead panning again, Burns elevates squalid and dismal ends to epic status. And through the winds and by the cairn, where hunters fanned the murdered bairn. And near the thorn aboon the well, where Mungo's mither hanged her sail. What keeps Tam invincible is the poem's insatiable pace and rhyme, the perfect register to suit a reckless pleasure-seeker. Carol McGurk writes that Wordsworth's attraction to Burns partly lay in the sound, the play of words, the sumptuous feast of vowels and diphthongs, the hyperactive rhyming, although all were so different from his own poetic practice. Here, the rhyme, like Tam, seems to take strength from pleasure, intensifying with intoxication. As Sean Barry has pointed out, the first instance of double rhyme in the poem occurs at the very moment the narrator introduces drink. Well, we sit boozing at the nappy and getting foo and unca happy. Nappy is ale and getting foo means getting mellow, a phrase which Barry reads as epitomising how the ludic, the comic, playful, bodily and anarchic in literature destabilises established hierarchies. It certainly seems to leave Tam immune from the conventional fate of such a character. His doom has been foretold, his crime cheerfully repeated, and yet punishment never comes. It only pulls off the tail of his poor horse, Maggie. And speaking of disrespecting established hierarchies, spare a thought for Satan. After a prestigious run in literature, his appearance here is quite the comedown. A lecherous, bagpiping, towsy tyke who fails to chase down a farmer. And it wasn't as if Burns didn't respect the canon, as he once confessed, I have bought a pocket Milton, which I carry perpetually around with me, in order to study the sentiments, the dauntless magnanimity, the intrepid, unyielding independence, the desperate daring, the noble defiance of hardship in that great personage, Satan, who is not so great a personage in the eyes of Tam, especially when you consider the words of Nigel Leask, who suggests 
The demonic bagpiping introduces an element of sexual innuendo that permeates the remainder of the poem, for both the diabolic and phallic associations of the instrument are well attested in Scottish tradition. Scottish traditions on show in the poem, it may come as a surprise to learn that Tam was commissioned by an Englishman, Captain Francis Groes. A corpulent antiquary in a golden age of antiquaries, Groes was collecting British folk stories. After meeting Burns, the poet suggested he include in his Scottish volume a picture of Alloway Kirk, to which Groes agreed, providing Burns supply him with an accompanying folk legend associated with the site. Burns responded with three, one of which, authentic according to the poet, is the outline for Tamashanta. In the prose version he sent to Groes, we find a slightly different and much less exuberant version to that in the poem. The farmer here is unnamed but once again is in an air market and has to cross the Brigadoon to get home. He sees the blazing Kirk but instead of being curious and not afraid he is quite rightly petrified. Witches, it should be remembered, were still being burnt at the stake as recently as 1722. Here, the reason given for the farmer not running away immediately is that he knows that to turn your back in such a situation is the worst thing to do. Once again, upon looking in at the church, he cannot help himself from chuckling at the lassie dancing in a skirt that was far too short, bursting out with a loud laugh, We'll loppen Maggie with a short sack. In the poem version, Maggie, of course, is Tam's steed, and the famous line that gets Tam spotted is, We'll done cutty sack, meaning well done short skirt or shrift. The flight is much the same, with the farmer making it to the Brigadoon only at the price of his horse's tail. The poor thing's stump serving as an awful warning to the Carrick farmers not to stay too late in air markets. In short, it is the same story without the gallop and without the reaming swats. When our Tam sees the bleezing Kirk, he approaches fearless on poor astonished Maggie. Inspiring bold John Barleycorn, what dangers thou canst make us scorn. With Tippany we fear nee evil, with Uscaby we'll face the devil. Tippany being ale and Uscaby whiskey. John Barleycorn was the folk embodiment of the barley crop and the alcohol made from it. He grows and dies with the harvest, somewhat similarly to versions of the Green Man figure discussed in our previous episode. But while Tam might be glowing with Scotch courage, the figure of John Barleycorn did more than just get the drinks in. As Nigel Leask says, When meal and barley were short, the much-vaunted stability of 18th century Scotland simply broke down. The ensuing hardship would be felt particularly among the farming classes of Burns's family. And though Burns was friends with Captain Groves, some critics have read Tamashanta as containing a rebuke against those who would ransack the folk culture he grew up with. According to Murray Pittock, the moral coda to the tale depends on the loss of the tale with an eye, and these two tales can be taken as symbolising the external antiquarian stance of the collector, who imposes the moral of the tale and the interior secret self of the tale with an eye, whose love for a bawdy story is in fact the hidden warning coda to the antiquarian's practice of depoliticizing and boulderizing the peasant world. It's unlikely that Burns meant to directly mock Groves, as apart from anything else, he was willing to remove four lines which had offended some of his acquaintances. These lines came at the scene of the witch's dance, where Tam saw, 
Three lawyers' tongues turned inside out, will eyes seemed like beggars' clout. Three priests' hearts, rotten black as mook, lay stinking vile in every nook. Nevertheless, the poem may still represent a battle won. In one of the most noticeably English passages, Burns reflects on the transience of pleasure. But pleasures are like poppies spread, you seize the flower, its bloom is shed. Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white, then melts forever. Or like the Borealis race, that flit ere you can point their place. Or like the rainbow's lovely form, evanishing amid the storm. This is how it goes for us, and how it went for the fat and boozing Captain Grose, engravings of whom Sean Barry describes as depicting a drunkenness that halts the movement of his body and his talk, characterising the study of the past as a kinetic, sociable enterprise that must regulate its consumption if it would thrive. It is not so for Tam, whose indulgence in bodily pleasure gives him nerve, and this pleasure-seeking is valorised in the body and language of the poem, whose best bits are the Scots bits, the eldritch rigwoody hags, the winnock bunkers and reaming swats, the pleasurable bits, that is, that raise Tam to heroic heights and o'er all the ills a life victorious. And that's pretty much all we have time for today. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you have, please share it around, um, subscribe to us on whatever your podcast platform of choice is, and maybe even consider visiting our Patreon page over at patreon.com slash eerie this. You can find exclusive episodes on works by Robert Louis Stevenson, Raymond Chandler, and Ovid. Apologies to any Scottish people I may have offended with my awful accent. It's been a slightly spontaneous episode, this one, and um, I didn't give myself enough time to find a Scottish reader. Uh, if I do another Burns, I will um, make sure I have a Scottish person nailed down before <laughs> before I venture upon it. But until next time, I wish you a very happy Burns night and see you very soon. Happy reading. <laughs>